I want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Charlie Echevetti, founder at Black Brown. Let's jump in and get to know Charlie. Charlie, welcome. How are you? Thanks, man. Thank you for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Both of you guys, great to see you. Yeah, love it, man. This uh, incredible new medium. So I love uh, being brought into all kinds of conversations and just really appreciate the invite. Absolutely. And thank you for all the love you've shown the show and guests, and, and we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at Black Brown these days? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, look, Black Brown is a strategic advisory that I set up about two and a half years ago now, right when I left. I was previously the chief revenue officer at a company called MeToo, M-I-T-U. And, you know, I kind of learned all about the space and ways that you can really use a knowledge and understanding of diversity to turn and create new revenue streams, new revenue centers. And so I set up that shop two and a half years ago and really helping business leaders, mostly C-level folks, figure out how to turn diversity into a revenue engine. That's kind of the goal of the firm. You know, obviously this year has been... Uh, you know, it's been an interesting year for everybody, not just me, right? So that's one of the great points of instant relatability with people is that every time I meet somebody new, it's we got something in common right away. We're all mm-hmm. living through the same stuff. And, you know, look, in the beginning, it was tough, right? I mean, we got furloughed. We got some cancellations. We actually, one of our clients, the XFL, the new football league went bankrupt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just recently came back under the, under the rock. And so we'll see what happens. But, you know, there was a lot of stuff that, uh, that hit us and um, it was difficult for sure. But like anything else, it created an opportunity for innovation and created an opportunity to reinvent yourself and, you know, to certain degrees. And we invested in a number of different things. And now things are going, you know, real well. And thank God for that. And, you know, we'll just kind of keep plugging away. It's what we do. Awesome. You know, Charlie, uh, I, I want to dive into your background. You've had a tremendous sure. career working for some amazing companies. I want to circle back to that in a little bit, but I'd love to know a little bit about your background and your family and your culture. Mm-hmm. Tell us where, where Charlie's from and tell us about your family. Yeah, I love it. So I was born in LA, actually East Hollywood, out in an old hospital called Cedars of Lebanon, no longer exists out there. So born in LA to a Colombian family, immigrant family. I'm first-generation American. My family, both sides, mom and dad, came from, uh, from Colombia. My mom from Cali and my dad from the kind of coffee-growing region, Anserma Caldas. And when I was really young, my dad uh, started working at Bank of America, and he started climbing the ranks pretty quickly. And so he decided to take on an international role. And so I moved very soon after, I think I was two or three years old, when we left LA and uh, started making a tour around the Latin American and Caribbean part of the world, because that's the, that's the role that my dad was overseeing. So, you know, left LA when I was really young, ended up living in Mexico City in Tecamachalco, love all my Mexican brothers and sisters. In fact, even though I'm Colombian, I had my formative years in Mexico. So mm. even though it makes my mom really angry, I always say I'm more Mexican than I am <laughs> Colombian. <laughs> um, you know, I was there for my kind of formative years. Then we moved to uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Very different vibe down there, as you guys probably well know. Much more of kind of a European vibe, much more of an old country kind of vibe. Spent some time there. Then we moved to Venezuela, spent a number of years in Venezuela as well. Completely different place too. And then kind of rounded out, lived in the U.S. Virgin Islands in St. Thomas, and then moved eventually to Florida, which is where my dad sort of ended his career with the bank. I ended up going to high school and college uh, in South Florida. And uh, yeah, it just kind of made like a giant, you know, you from L.A. all the way through, uh, you know, South American continent to the Caribbean, ended up in Florida. And then, you know, after college, moved back to L.A. So full circle. That's amazing. South America. Mm-hmm. 
Caribbean. Uh, you mentioned sort of that European influence on the South American sort of vibe. And then coming back here, tell us about how that, you know, sort of impacted you and, and sort of uh, yeah. made you who you are today. You know, it's really interesting because it's one of those things when you're a kid, like it, you, you're not happy about it, right? You're not happy about moving every, you know, year or you know, 18 months or whatever it is, you're trying to kind of lay down roots. You just, you make some friends. And next thing you know, your dad comes home and is like, Hey, we're, we're moving. So mm. as a kid, you don't appreciate it as much as you do when you, you know, get older. But in retrospect, I mean, I wouldn't change any part of it. I'll, I'll tell you the thing that is maybe upon reflection, the thing that I kind of draw a lot of, uh, a lot of energy from is that it gave me a real deep, 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 deep appreciation for the incredible, you know, diversity of the world, right? So even in the Latin America, yeah. as, as you guys know, even in Latin America, right, the rich cultural uh, diversity, the rich, you know, differences in customs and traditions and all that stuff that I grew up as. And the kind of trippy thing is, even though I am Latino, I grew up as an American expat, right? I'm American. Mm-hmm. I had a real deep sense of being American, yeah. but I grew up in these Latin American companies kind of looking a lot like folks, but having this kind of different perspective. So I think the the contribution that it made first and foremost was a real a real sense of that kind of multiculturalism in a true sense I lived it I think it definitely helps you know expand horizons and the advice that I give to anybody who's looking to invest is invest in travel that's the best investment you can make not just for yourself but for your family as well like as soon as my kids got old enough to get on a plane we started going places because that's really what it's about from my standpoint mm-hmm. is interacting with different people and cultures and and uh, it's a beautiful thing so Say that. That's pretty cool. You get to do with your kids sort of what you went through, but in a different way, right? You get to travel yeah. and see things. You well, know, some I, people some people spent the money on the nice digs and the nice car and you know all that stuff. And I was like, man, if I'm gonna plunk down some change, we're gonna go see some places. You know what I mean? And that's what I spent money on, honestly. You've had a tremendous career in media, AOL, Walt Disney Companies, Univis Young. How did you get started down that path? I mean, just straight up fluke, I think. I, you know, I had like six, I was a English major, psychology major, whatever. I I changed my majors like every semester in college for a period of time and ultimately ended up getting a degree in communications, which I I can honestly tell you, even though I like studied this stuff and did a bunch of different, you know, film and television production, getting my degrees, I really didn't even understand what the idea of media was when I was in college. I was monumentally sort of naive about a number of things. So I did study you know, my career, but I went to school in South Florida, right? I went to FAU. When I got out of FAU, I was living in, you know, Fort Lauderdale and trying to have a a career in media. That's not like a really great place to do it. So I immediately got into sales and I found out pretty quick that I was really good at drawing pictures in people's minds about something and getting them excited about what that thing could mean for them. So I I had a very successful sales career and I sold like the, the worst thing in the world, right? Worse than used cars. I sold office equipment, like, you know, copiers and printers Amazing. and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Which again, I wouldn't change for the world, man. You want to talk about a proving ground. That's the one. And so I did that. And, you know, one of my clients, this was when I was still living in South Florida. One of my clients was a magazine. They produced this kind of like fashion magazine for like South Beach and all that stuff. Very kind of glitzy, whatever. And, you know, I was selling them photocopiers, right? And the lady who ran the thing said, I really like you. Have you ever thought about selling media, selling advertising? And to me, it just seemed like so spectacular, this idea of, well, what are we really selling? Well, it's not a thing. It's kind of this audience and it's this brand and it's so intangible. 
And I thought that it really suited my ability to draw pictures in people's minds, right? Because when you're selling a copier, no matter how good your picture is, it's still going to be limited by what the thing actually does, right? So if people don't like the machine, it doesn't matter how you described it as, as much, right? So I really like that idea. I took that job selling basically print advertising on South Beach in Miami and you know, kind of never looked back. Soon thereafter, they uh, decided to open a West Coast version of that particular magazine. They asked me if I wanted to, to start the office out in LA. I said, yes, on a Wednesday. I was on a plane on a Friday and I've been here for 20 years since. Mm, mm. And, and Charlie, what, what do you love about sales? I mean, you, like, again, you've had a successful career in sales, leading sales teams at a number of different large organizations. What is it about sales that you love so much? I mean, I, I love teaching people the idea of communication, the idea of negotiation, the idea of building value, the idea of understanding that really the relationship between you know cost and value and how you manage that so people feel good about the things that they do. So the, the thing I love the most about sales is, is probably teaching other people how to do it. But you know, it's one of those things where it's challenging and nobody likes getting rejected. And I totally get that. But it can be a really great place to to kind of become galvanized, right? To sort of become, you know, in a way crystallized as a professional is in a place where you live or die on the basis of how successful your pitch is or your presentation is or that particular exchange is. And so I, I, I love all of that stuff about it. I also, you know, there's a bit of a lifestyle to sales. So, you know, back before we were all at home, obviously, but, you know, it was the one kind of role where you're moving quite a bit, right? You're obviously you're traveling, but you're not beholden to any particular location as much as perhaps other disciplines might be. And that suited me as well, because I, I like to be, as I've already mentioned, the kind of travel, I like to be moving around, right? I like to be in different places and, and sales kind of suited me in that regard as well. Gotcha. Okay. And now you're, you're a founder of Black Brown. What was the motivation behind starting the company? I think it's a really simple insight. And that is that I think that all of diversity, for the most part, from an industry standpoint, is really in one of either two modalities. Modality one is it's an HR function, right? So diversity as a diversity, equity, and inclusion function, or the second modality is diversity as in marketing, right? We've built something, we have a product, we have a service. Now we want to sell it to folks who are in these particular groups. And the sum of those two modalities, I think represents 90% of what corporate diversity actually means on a practical level. I'm not saying there's not exceptions to that. There are. But I think most COOs, CMO types that you talk to, they hear diversity, they think of DEI or they think of multicultural marketing. That's about the sum of it. Hmm. And what I think, and those things are great, by the way, I think they're very important. But in a way, neither one of them is really where like the magic of any business happens. That's just the truth, right? The magic happens where you build a new product, where you come up with a new idea, where you come up with a new strategy. That's where like the business is what the business is, right? Like Peloton is an example, because I just read an article about them. Peloton, like their magic is not necessarily around how they market or whether or not they have, you know, certain very needed and important HR disciplines in place. Their magic is we built this really great ecosystem of fitness around this stationary bicycle. Like that's the magic, right? So what I try to do with Black Brown is how can we take insights from diverse consumers and bring them into that magic spot in the organization so we can build new products, new services, new strategies around that and think of it that way as opposed to just a HR or marketing function. That's a very interesting approach. One that, Eric, I don't think we've heard on the podcast before, which is pretty cool. And so, so Charlie, is, is that where you see in terms of 
organizations moving forward and improving diversity and inclusion, is, is that where you see the sweet spot is in the product development? I mean, I think that that's got the most green field in terms of opportunity. And I'm not trying to say that the other areas are like, we're, we're sort of, you know, we're kind of played out there. We're not. We have a long way to go in a lot of these things. But I do think that it's far more interesting, at least to me, to equate diversity with growth and with a revenue stream and with a growth engine than it is to say, hey, it's kind of lives in these worlds because at the end of the day, and this, you know, again, may be sad or unpopular to say, a lot of things that are in the diversity space historically have been seen as cost centers. It's been seen as something that's needed, but it, it's an investment to make, right? And I think that that's true. But at the same time, I think that, you know, if we do it the right way, it's something that can create opportunity, that can create revenue, that can create a thriving business. And I think there's a lot less people having that conversation. And so, you know, I'm happy to kind of fill that gap. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. And yeah recently started your own podcast as well, the diversity. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, you know, of course, as you guys already know, because you guys are pros at this, right? I'm just getting started. But like, <laughs> but you know, the number one uh, promotional vehicle for podcasts is podcasts, right? So I appreciate you asking about that. Yeah. So diversity remix, you know, a little shorthand is TDR is basically the way that I say what we say, it's my partner and I who have the show. It's a weekly show. We drop it on Thursdays every week. And you know, our shorthand for that is that it's only provocative conversations at the intersection of business, politics, and culture. Right? Obviously, everything that we do is from a diverse point of view. So that's kind of built in. Right. But we want to look at topics that are happening you know, out there that we're all reading and approach them from this diverse perspective and also from different points of views. My partner and I see the world a very different way, right? different ideologically, from an experience standpoint, from nations of origin, I mean, the whole nine yards. So we want to bring that, you know, kind of different perspective into these conversations because like, yeah, I don't know how you fellas feel about this, but I look around and, and, and I see that we don't really have a lot of spaces and places where people can have nuanced discussions about, you know, complex stuff. I think that there's a lot of, you know, kind of headline driven stuff and share texts and tweets and whatnot. But like the evidence that's out there is, pretty dismal about the kind of environment that gets created as a result of that stuff. And I think we need more places where we can talk, you know, more at length about stuff that's tricky, right? And stuff that's not just like a headline answer. And so that's what the idea of the show is. And yeah, it's, it's early days, but, you know, it's, it's been a lot of fun. That's awesome. I want to get into some of that tricky discussion for a moment cool. with you. Can you talk to us about maybe issues of discrimination that you've been faced with throughout your career and tell us how you handled some of those? Give us some like real life examples that happened to Charlie. Yeah, I love that question. In fact, we actually have touched on this on the podcast. So, you know, look, so I, I mentioned to you guys kind of how I grew up my really early years was living abroad as kind of an American, although always Latino in these Hispanic and Caribbean countries, right? So I grew up that way. Now, come you know high school years, I moved to the States and moved to Florida at a time and in a place that was not at all diverse at all, right? So uh, as an example, my first week of high school, I came into class and the teacher sort of introduced me because I was coming in a little bit later, right? And said, here's you know Charlie and gave a little bit of my background and my experience. And one of the guys in my class, like after class came up to me and he said, he asked me if my family, my relatives in Colombia lived in trees. And he asked me that he wasn't trying to be like a smart ass and he wasn't, he wasn't kidding. 
Like he actually asked me that because that's what he believed. Now, he ended up becoming a friend of mine. It was, you know, no big deal. But the level of sort of disconnect of what the perspectives were and ideas were of people coming from, I guess in my case, Latin America, like that was my onboarding, (laughs) you know, to my sort of teen American experience. Even though I was I was born here, I hadn't been here in years and years, right? So that was kind of my onboarding. But to answer your question, you know, specifically, I've experienced, and I'm sure there's more, so I don't want anybody getting upset with me, but I've experienced two very clear forms of racism. And one I think is more insidious and kind of more dangerous than the other. The first is, you know, what I call kind of that, the racism of like malice, right? So I'm talking about like, fist fights, bleeding, you know, on the ground, pick yourself up. You're fighting somebody who just called you a nasty word. For me, I actually had to ask my friends what the insults were. When I was getting called a lot of words that I'm not going to repeat, I had to ask people what they meant because I didn't know, right? So, and then once I found that out, I'm like, oh, wait, so so that means we got to fight, right? So we would fight. So I've had that kind of racism where somebody insults you, insults your family, calls you a racial epithet, and you literally go to blows with somebody. But then the interesting thing about those exchanges, at least for me, is that afterwards, many times I could hug it out with those people. I really could. And in some cases, even had a good relationship with them. So I've had that kind of racism experience where like literally like you're bleeding for your race, right? The other kind of racism that I've experienced, I didn't really experience until I started having my career and out here in California, a place that is super, super progressive, like super progressive. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a different kind of racism. It was, and particularly when I started getting routed into like multicultural stuff, because at that moment, it was like, I lost my authority to speak on any subject other than this one. So I would go to, you know, whatever, these like really fancy conferences and whatnot. And, you know, you come into the room and you start having a conversation and people are real interested the moment you're talking about diversity. But the moment that that subject changes, it's like, no, thank you. You know, this sense of not being welcome in certain spaces because you were out of your lane, right? I experienced that kind of what I would consider, you know, racism, maybe even systemic racism in those places. And from very, I guess you wouldn't think the sources of that racism would be what they were, but they were generally very educated, very successful people who just were like, oh, that's that Latino thing. Like, that's fine when you talk about it, but don't, you know, when it's another subject, we're going to get our, our info from other sources. And I experienced that on so many different occasions where, you know, it's kind of like the sort of go to the end of the hall and talk to the one guy who's dealing with this sort of dynamic, right? But it never was really real for people at a senior level. It didn't, it didn't rise to their level. It wasn't something that, that they deigned important, right? And I've definitely felt that kind of racism. And the problem with me and that kind of racism is it's invisible, right? So it's really hard to root out sometimes. And for me personally, again, this is a personal experience. I'd rather have the first kind of racism because I know what that looks like. I can see it. And if we got to throw down, we'll throw down. But there's a chance that we can come up hugging and that's okay, right? The other one to me is, is just been tougher to deal with personally. Charlie, you know, you have a family that you have folks that you're bringing up, right? How do you have this balanced discussion about like how to manage situations like that moving forward? You know, like how, how do you teach your children to handle issues that they may be confronted with that you experienced already? Yeah, I mean, and, and my family is mixed, right? Uh, I mean, we have, my family is, is like, you know, United Colors of Benetton, if you were to look at it, where we got African-American, we obviously have a lot of Latino. 
We've got a variety. We've got, I've got white. My wife is Italian and she's actually, her parents were divorced. So now we've got people that are married in to the family. So it's a United Nations. My real family. life, real life. It is, it's real life. You know, I think part of the balance is that I, you know, try to, a few things. Number one is because it's built into my family, I get perspectives from a lot of different people. You know, I've got family in the Bible Belt. I've got family in the Rust Belt. I've got family on both coasts, right? You're going to get a lot of different perspectives and not a lot of agreement on a variety of different things. That's a great point. And I think that's actually good. I think it's good that we have discussions about things that we don't necessarily agree with. And when we talk about them, we kind of sharpen our own position and then we may, may be open to a different perspective and a different point of view. I think that's good. I teach my kids that. I'm like, you may feel really strongly about something right now. I did when I was, you know, my youngest is 15, you know, so I'm talking to my youngest son and I'm saying when I was 15, look, here's the things I believed and some of them I still do. Other ones, I like laugh that I believe that. Right. But the reason that I feel good about all of it is because I was in environments that fortunately for me challenged my own assumptions and I've surrounded myself with, with that stuff, right? So I, I really do try to get inputs from a variety of places. That's a big reason why we're doing the show that we're trying to do on the podcast is like, I don't want to just hear the same kind of orthodoxy from the same kind of people. I want to hear stuff that's challenging and it, stuff that maybe gets me to stand up and go, wait a minute, what? That's, that's good because worst case scenario, it just makes my point stronger because I know what I'm, what I'm up against, right? So I think that's kind of how I raise my kids. I'm also a person of deep faith, you know, and I raise my kids that like, you know, we're all children of God first and foremost before anything else. And so you got to respect, you know, people on, on that particular basis, even before you find out like what they do or where they went to school or all that other stuff, that part comes first. Thank you for that, Charlie. Awesome answer. Curious to understand how you're managing all, right? You've got, you know, the company that you founded, you've got family at home. We're in a time of covid is there a such thing as, as work-life balance? And, and I'm curious to know if your answer pre-COVID is the same that it is today. That's a great question. I mean, there's definitely been stuff that's changed. I mean, I think for you guys as well, everybody that I've talked to, you know, has had, you know, adaptations and moments of real struggle and moments of real growth. And I think the one good thing that's happened with all this COVID stuff is that it definitely has opened us up to a lot more innovation. Because when you struggle, you kind of come up with new stuff, right? So that's good. And I felt that myself in my own life. I mean, look, the work-life balance thing, I can tell you that I've seen, you know, all the peaks and the valleys, I think, because I had the, at Univision, you know, I was very senior level executive vice president, one of only a few in the company at a relatively young age. And, you know, I just got on that treadmill and I wanted to chase everything down as fast as I could. And if somebody said, hey man, can you do five? I would say I can do 10. And I would go trying to just chase everything. And ultimately it was very bad for me. It was very bad for my health. It was bad for my family dynamic. It was bad for my marriage. I mean, it was bad for a lot of things. I thought it was just do, 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 achieve, achieve, achieve. And it was, that's all that I cared about. And so I saw that and it, it burned me out. I mean, it burned me out to where like, you know, a couple of times in that six-year period, I had to take like a little ER timeout, right? And go because I had like pancreatitis or I'd have my appendix removed, even though I was like 35 and you're not supposed to have your appendix removed at 35. Stuff like that where your body was just going, hey, time out. Like, this is crazy. So I've done that. And then I've also done the startup life, which is kind of like, it's not the same corporate grind and the politics because in corporate world, most of the work is because you want other people to see what you're doing 
and you want to be seen in a particular light because it's going to be expedient for a particular outcome, right? So much of it, sadly, isn't about the work, but about the positioning. In the startup life, it's about the work for the most part, but there's a lot more work. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. do like a lot of this chasing and you don't know which way, you know, what you're going to do tomorrow, but there's a, a real vibrancy to it, a real sense of excitement. And so I love that too. I think now, you know, the balance for me is kind of the recognition that, you know, our lives increasingly are, are kind of integrated, right? So at least I think they should be where we're doing personal things at work and we're doing work things, you know, in our personal lives to, to a certain degree. I think we just have to have the sort of guardrails, you know, well set. I'll give you an example for me personally. No matter where I am, or I'm sorry, you know, no matter what time of year this is, this always happens for me is, you know, I'll get up usually, you know, 6, 6.30 in the morning. And the first thing that I'll do is I'll make coffee for my wife and I. And my wife and I will, and I'll, and I'll pray and do some stuff myself personally, but like I basically go up, I make coffee and I wake her up and we have coffee together. Half hour. I've been doing that for 20 years. Wow. That half hour of coffee with my wife, I can tell you, has saved my life. I promise you, okay? Because of the crazy nonsense that I believe sometimes in my own head, and it kind of sets me at kind of even, right? So that's a guardrail I have not broken. Like, yeah, I've got to be on a call at seven in the morning with some guy in London. It doesn't matter. That time is what that time actually is. Sometimes it's like the really simple things, right? There's like books and all kinds of courses you can take and all this stuff, but it's like, what are the things that you will not violate? that are important for you, for your sanity, for your family, for your marriage, and kind of holding on to those and being a real stickler about them, right? That's the kind of stuff that's helped me maintain that balance. But yeah, do I take a call on a Saturday? Yes, I do. Will I build a presentation on Sunday sometimes? If I have to, right? But, but the whole idea is kind of keeping those things in their proper priority list and recognizing where they are relative to other things, right? Maybe your faith tradition, maybe your family, your friendships, those need to be oriented higher than the work stuff, point blank. No matter what you're doing, it's got to be lower. That's awesome. Tell us about folks in your life that have impacted you, like mentors. Who are some of those people personally and professionally that have uh, impacted you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So my dad, number one, I'm sure you guys hear that quite a bit. My, my old man passed away in 2015. Think about him every day, love him dearly, taught me a ton in life, taught me a ton dying. His death taught me a lot, how he died with like such incredible dignity and just grace and courage. I mean, this is like an amazing, amazing person that I think about. So first and foremost, I think him sort of by extension, my brother, who else is two years older than I am, but somebody who, you know, kind of, I don't know if you guys are older brothers or, you know, younger or neither, but like as a younger brother, your kind of older brother sort of opens the doors and, you know, takes the spills first, you know, kind of falls on his face first and you can kind of learn from their mistakes and all that. And so, you know, a significant kind of motivation for me. And then, you know, I, in the business world, I don't know. I, I, I've worked with a lot of super, super talented people, you know, at companies that I, I really love. You know, the Walt Disney Company was an incredible experience. Even Univision, even though it was, it was like Vietnam for me. It was a really tough, you know, five, six years. Nevertheless, I met some people that I'm still in touch with and, and love and care for a great deal. But there's not one that I go, here's the person that like really on a business level, I think I've been shaped by so many different people in you know one way or another. One example that just comes to mind is when I was at AOL, the president of sales was a guy named Bob Sherman. He was a former like head of sales at uh, Turner, I believe. He's passed away since. He was an older guy even when I worked with him. 
But I remember walking into a meeting. This is early days of the internet, right? And we were trying to get everybody excited about this internet thing. And people were yeah. like, what the, you know, what is yeah. it? Is it, it works. It works. It works. It works. <laughs> is it going to be around in a couple of years? And I remember walking into this meeting with like, it was like apartments.com or it was another .com, right? That was booming and spending VC money and everything else. <laughs> and I remember I'm trying to sell this company advertising and we're kind of going through the pitch. And at one point, and I got like one day out of the all three and a half years that I was there to ride with the president of sales because he, he wasn't even in LA. He was out, out east. Mm. And I remember sitting in that room. And at one point, about 20 minutes into the meeting, he reaches over to my laptop, grabs my laptop, and he closes it. Literally in the middle of my presentation. Mm. And he looks, up, he looks up at the people that are in the meeting and he goes, see, the problem here is we have two sellers and no buyers. Meaning that the people that I was trying to sell to were themselves trying to ingratiate themselves with AOL, right? It was like, hey, we should run your apartments listing or whatever. And so it, it was like such an important lesson to me as a young, as a real young person to like, a lot of times we're in meetings and we know what's going on. We understand what's happening, but we feel like it'd be impolite to kind of point that out or just say, hey, this isn't going real well, is it? Mm. You know, and he showed me that that, that can happen. It was shocking when he did it, but I've really reflected on that. So people like Bob Sherman, I mean, that, and there's lots of those folks who've taught me little things that I've kind of made into this patchwork quilt mm -hmm. of what I call my, you know, my career. Mm -hmm. Charlie, what advice would you give to that kid that's in South Florida right now about to graduate college and is looking yeah. for a career in sales? So, you know, in sales, the advice is that, you know, I, and maybe I'm a little bit old school about this. I kind of feel that salespeople are born and to some degree made, they can be shaped, right? But there are people, and look, I've had a number of incredible people on my teams that were better suited in other roles within the organization than frontline sales, right? So I think that there is a certain characteristic, a certain, I don't know what it is, X factor, whatever. And that's not to say it's a positive. I'm just saying it's a difference that salespeople have where they can go out there and get told no 500 times and, and come back. And I'm really speaking of kind of like major account selling, right? Not like high volume selling, because that's a different thing altogether. So I would say, you know, to really, you know, focus on maybe other salespeople that they know and, and think about what they have in common or in contrast with folks like that to determine whether or not that's actually something that they want to, to follow through on. In digital media, I would say this, and that is, you know, and especially in diverse digital media, I would say to never lose your personal agency. I see that a lot happening, particularly in diversity circles where somebody's got what they think is a cool idea, or maybe they have a problem with something, but they feel afraid to say it because maybe they don't have the right letters after their name or the right life experience. And I always feel really sad about that because if somebody has a good idea, they should be able to share it even if it's wrong, right? So I think not losing your personal agency. And then on the digital media side, I'm a little bit of a pessimist because like, I think that coming into the digital world right now, and by digital, I mean all of it, right? Over the top, AI, social, gaming, you come into that world, the only advice I would give is just because the foundation is there doesn't mean the foundation is a good one. Meaning, you know, we're just now beginning to see the positive and negative effects of all the stuff we've built over the last, you know, couple decades. And some of it is not good. Okay. A lot of it is not good. And I think people coming in and just going, oh, this is the way it is. That's a mistake. People should look at that foundation that's been laid and think to themselves, how can we do better? 
Hmm. How can we orient to things that are better for people, that are better for the world, right? And I'm not just dinging on social platforms, but like specifically in the social world, right? The idea of coming into that and saying, hey, this is how we monetize and this is how the algorithm works. And it just is. I think that could be a very easy temptation for somebody young to have, and they should challenge that. Yeah, there's a saying that I love, which is just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I made the mistake of watching that uh, <laughs> mistake. It's actually a really good doc, but I saw the social dilemma. Oh, I was. Um, <laughs> did, did you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I love your guys' thoughts on it, but I saw yeah. that. I was like, you know, like the actual data, I feel like I knew a lot of that already, but the way that they spun it together, especially with that kind of like just the format that they chose to tell the documentary, it was really impactful. And the sort of like, you know, putting over the screen, all of the things that have been negative social, you know, impacts that have happened and kind of mapping that directly over like iPhone and mobile, you know, timeline. And, you know, I know that, you know, uh, correlation is not causation. Like I get that, but man, you know, there's some stuff in there that we got to get in there and fix. And I just feel it's about the young people coming in and not just taking that stuff for granted and saying, this is how it works. I guess we just have to live with it. I think that stuff needs to be challenged and changed. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So Charlie, one question I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast is give me the top three apps on your phone that you use regularly. (laughs) You can't calendar or text messaging. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. So I have one we'll see if you've heard this one, you got to let me know. But um, there's one called laudate, which is a Latin term, which means to rejoice, basically. And so it's kind of a devotion, you know, prayer application, that kind of thing. I use that one quite a bit. It's really, really good. The other one that I use is called WOD generator, W-O-D, which means work out of the day for anybody who's, who doesn't do functional fitness. And, you know, I've been working out at home. Like, you know, we still don't have gyms open out here. My gym sadly was a casualty of coronavirus. It was a, you know, family owned gym, went out of business, sadly. So I started working out in my backyard and kind of built my little faux gym. But workout of the day is basically a generator, an app generator that creates a workout for you that day. And it's kind of like Russian roulette because all of them are really hard. And so when you press it, you're like, ah, you're kind of hoping, you know, hoping it doesn't go to the, to the, to the hard one, but it's always a hard one. So I use that one quite a bit. And then the third one, probably like Google Podcasts. I mean, I I love the podcast format. I think in particular, it's needed now more than ever because like I said, I think I said earlier, like we don't have those spaces to talk, right? And I know that this is, you know, you guys, this is a guest-driven podcast and you you guys have questions and the guests give answers and all of that. I think that's awesome too, but I definitely uh, love the podcast format or realm because I think it allows for conversations and new meetings, you know, like you know, we didn't know each other and Absolutely. and now we do, you know, and it's, I, I just, I love that. You know, uh, Charlie, you talked about sort of connecting and we're so grateful you were here to connect with us. And then also with the audience, you know, what's a good way for our audience to stay in touch with you and, and connect and continue to follow you? Yeah. So um, blackbrown.us is the site and all of our information is there. Links to the podcast, links to our thought leadership series, Next Normal, links to client case studies. So all that stuff on the kind of professional level, blackbrown.us is there. But, you know, it's charlie at blackbrown.us if anybody wants to reach out. And obviously LinkedIn works, but I would say that'd be it. And, you know, right now I'm really hyped on the podcast. So to the extent people could give that trailer a listen and if they hate it, let me know. If they love it, let me know. But the Diversity Remix is the name of the podcast. 
Excellent. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening. And if uh, you want to find more episodes, find us where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look for the logo. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.